the mad thing is, is whenever you talk about legalisation, people imagine that legalisation is introducing groups. And the cannabis referendum was flawed in terms of the campaign because it was as if we were going to introduce cannabis to New Zealand. Cannabis is here. It's already here. It's yeah. here. What should have been in the dock was prohibition. So like what you said then, oh, if we legalise drugs, they're all going to be off their head. But drugs are already here. You can order drugs like you can order a pizza. Kia ora and welcome to Revolving Door Syndrome. I'm Dr Nina Sue, your friendly neighbourhood paediatric and emergency doctor. My day job is helping sick kids get better. But lately, I felt like I'm pushing a revolving door round and round in circles. I patch these kids up, send them back to the environment that made them sick in the first place, and they come right back through those hospital doors again. Together with my partner Connor, we've created this podcast to deep dive into the reasons for our broken systems, and perhaps find some real solutions. This podcast was brought to you by Medworld, and made in association with the School of Medicine, University of Auckland. Welcome to Revolving Door Syndrome. On this episode, we've got Dr. Julian Buchanan, who is a expert in addiction and also is just starting the Harm Reduction Coalition Aotearoa, here to talk about drug policy. Thank you so much for coming. Thanks for inviting me. It's uh, good to be here. Could you tell us a little bit about how you ended up down this route of studying addiction? It's quite a long story, really. It began really from having grown up in with a lived experience of disadvantage and poverty and seeing a lot of trauma and inequality in working class in the city of Liverpool. And I wanted to make a difference. I wanted to do something. And there were opportunities back in the early 70s when I left school. And I became a social worker. I managed to go to Liverpool University and become a qualified probation officer. And as a probation officer, this was in the early 1980s in England. And that's when heroin became a huge issue. Prior to the 1980s, we need to understand that drug use was not a mainstream activity. Drug use was largely confined to the middle classes. It was largely students and people experimenting to enhance their life, see things differently. But what happened in the 1980s in England was a period of major change, social change, of deindustrialization and factories closing. And people who'd worked in factories and shipyards or coal mines all their life, and they suddenly, aged 50-odd, suddenly became unemployed with little chance of recapturing any employment. But then so did the children who'd always imagined that they would find employment. They didn't. They realised there was no jobs in the early 1980s. And what that did was it led to a huge outbreak in heroin addiction which had never been seen before amongst the working class. 
And it's interesting that you say that happened in 1980s because that's not the only time it's happened, has it? You look at the states as well. They've had massive amounts of job losses with factories being moved overseas and all that. And it's happening again there. And I'm sure it's happened in New Zealand. Prior to 1980, it hadn't happened. So this was a new thing, really. But you're quite right in saying that wherever you see deprivation and people with no hope, then you will see issues like drug addiction. So to answer your question is, as a, the government threw a lot of money at health, education, social services and probation, and they were desperate to stop this issue in the 1980s. And the reason why they were desperate was less that they cared for drug users, but more that they were frightened to death of HIV AIDS, which became an issue in the mid-late 1980s. So the thinking was, we need to engage with these drug users because if we're not careful, they're going to end up sharing needles and they're going to end up sleeping with the heterosexual and the non-drug using community. And, and then we'll have HIV AIDS. And at that time, it was a real fear of a pandemic of death, really. So they threw lots of money for three years to, to deal and get rid of this problem. And I was one of the people who had some experience of working with drug users as a probation officer. So I became a drug specialist in, in that period. What things did you see that you think the average person just has no understanding of? Yeah, no, honestly, I had no understanding of. So I, and I think most people didn't at that time, really. And I've never used an illicit drug in my life ever. I had the belief that as a probation officer, which was the main dominant discourse at that time, that what we need to do is to get these people off drugs. And if we can get them off drugs, they'll live. But if we don't get them off drugs, they're going to die. And that was the perceived wisdom. I feel like it was. It still yeah, is. Well, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, frighteningly, yes. This is the mad thing, is that what I did and what I set up in the 1980s would be gold standard service here in 2023. So I worked with Dr. John Marks, who was a psychiatrist in Liverpool. I should just go back a, a stage. You, you asked me, what did I see? What did I learn? And that was my philosophy. And what I was doing is I had these mainly young blokes and young women, usually between the ages of 17, 18 to 26, 28 or whatever. And they were up in court for shoplifting. And so they were up in court to fund their habits. So if you've got a 30, 50 pounds a day, which would be like 60, $100 a day habit, then you can't fund that when you're unemployed. So they would go around shoplifting. And there were no mo mobile phones in those days, so they would go and call at certain places to try and get their drugs. And then they would be up in court because they got caught or whatever. And I, that's when I got involved. And I would write a report for court. And I'd say to the magistrate, look, I've spoken to Susan. I've spoken to Carl or whatever. They realise they're in a mess and I talk to them about the mess of drugs and they've said they want to give up drugs and I'll take them to a detox, I'll take them to a rehab. So I was taking everybody to all these different places. But what was happening is that they, they were being set up to fail. So I realised I was part of the problem. I was taking people to a rehab because, and they were promising that they'd become drug free because... Everybody was expecting that and everybody was pressurising them for that. And, uh, and when they're up in court and decide that they could go to prison or whatever, then they're going to say yes to a rehab or whatever. But if you're not ready, able or wanting, 
then there's no point in trying to get people off drugs. And what was really sad is that I had a relationship with people, but I had screwed up one of their chances when they wanted to get help because the only help that was available was to become drug-free. So that's when I that's when I went to a lot of meetings and discussions with different people and came across and developed risk reduction, which later has been absorbed within harm reduction. And what do you mean by risk yeah. reduction? Well, risk reduction is basically working with people constructively so long as we're reducing risks. So it's about maintaining connection and relationship and helping people with their struggles. So if they're not ready, able or wanting to give up drugs, I would help them to reduce the harm that drugs are doing to them and to their family or to society. One of the obvious ways that we did that was I met up with Dr. John Marks at the Liverpool Hope Street Drug Dependency Clinic and we got into prescribing heroin and methadone, injectable ampule form and oral, to people who were addicted to heroin and methadone. But that was very controversial at that time. And at that time, there was this abstinence versus maintenance debate, really. But as you said before, most of these issues arise in areas of deprivation and poverty. And through my work subsequently over those years, I realised that the vast majority of people who become addicted are people who are self-medicating. They're using drugs as a solution to a problem. So drugs are not their issue. Addiction is an issue, but it is not the issue. So if you tackle and get them drug-free, you're not dealing with their issue. Their issue might be sexual abuse, it might be physical abuse, it might be learning disabilities, it might be being on the spectrum and having all these unmet needs. It might be being homeless or just chronically isolated from anything and having no hope. But what drugs do is they give people purpose and routine and structure and they take away the pain. And that's what I found mm. with people. So when we gave people heroin or we gave them methadone and we saw them each week, they were able to then withdraw from the whole criminal scene. Quite interesting that you say that addiction is the issue, but it's not the only issue. Because I had a previous episode where I talked to Mike King, and he's a very big proponent of mental health and all that with his work in I Am Hope and Gumboot Friday. And he was talking about his issues with previous addiction and alcoholism. And it's like people say that that's the thing that's killing people. Well, actually, those are the things that are probably keeping people yes. alive. People see it as the solution. It's the one thing that keeps yes, people going. Totally. That is, that is exactly my experience is that the drugs and the whole drug scene and the habit is a way of coping. And it is. And if you remove that, then you have a huge responsibility to address the real issues that are underlying the addiction, because that's not the main problem. The main problem is what led them to become addicted in the first place. It's very subjective about what we say is dangerous and not dangerous. It's not scientific. I will say strongly uh, that a drug is a social construct. So when you talk with your colleagues about, oh, a drug user came, when you talk with the word drug, it means a banned substance. But really, a banned substance is a social construct. If you're talking about psychoactive drugs, then we're talking about caffeine and we're talking about alcohol 
and we're talking ab- about nicotine and we're talking about a whole range of pharmaceuticals. Do we all take drugs? Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And so we are all drug users. And so I, this idea that they're the drug users, they're not. Your colleagues will be starting the day needing a few hits of a stimulant psychoactive. And many people will be ending the day w- w- with a downer of a depressant psychoactive. This is all very normal and I'm not critical of it. But I think we need to acknowledge that the whole war on drugs is not a war on drugs. It's, a, it's false. It's a war on particular substances. And that war on particular substances privileges the other substances that go under the radar. And they have got no scientific reason to be privileged. The drugs which go under the radar are not particularly safer or less harmful than the drugs which are deemed to be dangerous drugs. From a clinician yeah. point of view, the drugs that are probably the worst ones in terms of addiction, it's negative effects in New Zealand in terms of the, the banned okay. substances, right? The worst ones in New Zealand is probably methamphetamine, yep. Yep. right? What do you think caused that? It's been around for years and it's been, obviously it's a derivative of amphetamine. And so you're talking about Ad- Adderall and Ritalin and amphetamine, methamphetamine. So they're all part of the same family. And it's been, it was, those drugs were used in the war to keep the pilots and to keep soldiers awake through the night or whatever. So they've been around a long time. I don't honestly know. I'm not, I'm not a sort of pharmacologist or I haven't got masses of knowledge around the history of each drug. So I don't exactly know when methamphetamine emerged, but I don't see it as any real difference to cocaine or to amphetamine or Adderall or Ritalin for that matter. They're clearly stimulant drugs. And if you say, oh, methamphetamine causes loads of problems in our country, I think that's right. But I think what you're looking at, which is what you're often looking at with any illicit drug use, isn't the drug. You're looking at a whole associated lifestyle, which is created through criminalization. So if you criminalise and make a drug underground, you create cultures and gangsters and ducking and diving. And then what you're looking at isn't always methamphetamine either. The people who come into your emergency departments in the hospital that you see who are off their heads on methamphetamine, I would wage a bet that most of them will be off their heads mentally without methamphetamine. What happens with drugs is that whenever anything occurs it becomes an easy caveat to say, oh, that's because of drugs. And that's what drugs do. It's like teeth dropping out or the meth face or whatever. People on Adderall or Ritalin, they don't lose their teeth. Their faces don't become like that. These are consequences of lifestyles and their lifestyles of what we talked about before when we said that the people who get involved in addiction, it's the solution to a problem. So these are people with mental health problems, people who are alienated, people who are homeless, people who aren't eating properly, people who aren't sleeping properly. And then you look at the face of people who do those sort of things, then they will look like that. But we will say, oh, it's because they're on methamphetamine. I suppose you could almost say that amphetamines, it's, it's classy if you're rich, but it's trashy if you're yeah, poor. Yeah, 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 well, but the thing is, if you're rich, so if you come across medics who use stimulant drugs to help them do shifts or whatever, 
I mean, I don't know that there's many people that do that now, but I'm pretty sure like back in the day, in the early 1900s, yeah, I'm pretty sure doctors take coke. Lorry drivers use methamphetamine, stimulant drugs to keep them awake. And the police actually stop people, particularly on state holidays here, and they give them stimulant drugs. And they stop them and say, come and have a coffee. So there's a lot of contradictions operating here. But what I was going to say about, you you said about rich and poor, is that when you think about prohibition, the, the law enforcement does not police the rich or the privileged. They police the poor. And so Maori people will be stopped and searched. And this isn't just New Zealand. This will be true in England and true in the US, true in South Africa, true in, in, in Australia. It'll be the poor population, the indigenous population and people of colour who will be frequently and continually stopped and pulled. So a lot of people who are like you and I will think prohibition's not that bad because most people don't get affected by it, but the poor populations get hammered by it. And if you don't have many opportunities and you get a criminal record for drugs, then that stuffs your life opportunities for employment, for housing, for travel, for insurance, for relationships. If you've got a criminal conviction for drugs, you're going to struggle. And that's crazy because like using drugs shouldn't be like a like a criminal offence. It's what you do. So is it because our drugs are actually quite safe? And, and so we've got a rationale which says, actually, they're doing dangerous drugs. No, it isn't. The one that I, I think maybe you would agree with me that, that probably the worst drug you can think of would be alcohol. In, in, in oh, terms absolutely. of the damage to the organs of your body, the dependency, the risk of death on withdrawal. The physical harm, emotional harm, psychological harm, the harm that has on families, communities. Yep. And the fact that we still, we're so reliant on the alcohol industry to like fund sports and things like that. I, I don't no, understand. No, totally. Yeah. And we normalize it. And I I have the beverages occasionally because I'm like, you know what? I deserve a treat. I, <laughs> God, I go down to the occasional brewer and make 40 litres of APA every few months or whatever. And the government and the country allow me to make that. And they give me all the equipment and I could make more than 40 litres a month. So we have the most dangerous drug that's available, widely used, and it's used to celebrate every event and occasion possible. In New Zealand history, have we had prohibition of alcohol as well? I think there might have been a period in New Zealand history. I've been here 12 years, so again, I don't know all the histories really, but prohibition in the US was well documented, yeah. And what were the effects of prohibition on like alcoholism and the negative effects? The impact of prohibition was just like what we see of the impact of prohibition of drugs today. So you created prohibition of alcohol and what it led to was an unregulated supply with lots of poison and didn't reduce alcohol use. It didn't reduce deaths. But what it did do is it did create a huge gangster and underground market. And the other things that a lot of people probably don't realise is that when you make alcohol, ethanol, which is yes. the alcohol that you want, is that people don't understand that if you cook it wrong, you can make methanol, which is very toxic. You can go blind yeah. from that. So if we had prohibition of alcohol in New Zealand, we probably would have you know, sky high rates of methanol poisoning. And that's that probably is what is happening with some people who are using illicit drugs is that they're getting impurities that are causing the bad side effects. Totally. So if somebody wants to promote prohibition, I will say to that person, I've got grandchildren who we adore and spend a lot of time with, and you think, I don't want my grandchildren to grow up in this environment of drug prohibition because that means if they were 
to take illicit drugs. They don't know what they're taking. So it could be mixed with poison, like it's described for alcohol, but it could also, they'd have no idea of the strength. So they could take an ecstasy tablet, which under normal circumstances would be okay, but because it's so strong, it could kill them. And then if they developed an issue or needed help, they would be afraid to talk about it because it's illegal. Because that model of care that you were doing before back in the UK with the risk reduction model, the benefits would be is that if you were providing the methadone or providing the heroin, you're providing the needles, then these people are getting access to substances that are pure, that don't have the bad side effects, they know exactly how much they're getting and the risk of overdose is much less, the risk of poisoning is much less and they're not doing the criminal related activity like you were saying, like these people then, they're not going to go stealing. They come and have a chat with me to get their drugs. They're not going to some dodgy dealer who's engaged in a whole network and they could then get pulled into that whole network. They might get some free drugs. They might be given a a larger amount and ask, could you also sell this for us? And that way you wouldn't need to pay for this. And so they're being drawn into a whole criminal underground network. So the choice is, do you want want children to do that? Or do you want them to come and have a chat with me and get free drugs? Because if they don't have to pay for them, they also don't have to commit crime to fund them. So it's a no-brainer in in my mind, both to have harm reduction, but also to end prohibition. Do you have any good stories about good outcomes and stuff for some of your clients? I, I worked as a drug worker for about 10 years in Merseyside, but then I went into academia. So I've been researching the issue since then and publishing and writing about the issue. And now I'm more of a, I'm retired and I'm a campaigner now. Yeah, there's loads of good stories, tons, but you're dealing with people whose lives are very damaged and very messy. So there aren't many rags to riches and now I'm all wonderful. And now it's about people leaving a mess and having their life restored. And a lot of the work, because of the institutionalised oppressions, our approach to drugs emerged in the 1950s and then it was consolidated with the 1961 Single Convention on Narcotic Drugs in the UN Convention. And if you think back to what was happening in the 1950s and 60s, our treatment of people who were gay or homosexual, our treatment of people who wanted to commit suicide, our treatment towards abortion, our treatment towards the mentally ill, to the mentally disabled. It was shocking, absolutely shocking. Our treatments of indigenous people were shocking in the 50s and 60s. Now we've moved on all those areas, but we have not moved on at all on drugs. And it's no longer okay for government policies or rules or legislation to be oppressive towards women or towards black people or indigenous people, but it's still permissible to be oppressive around people who are using the wrong drugs or using drugs that the government refuses to approve. So I see this as an institutional form of oppression and it's rooted in racism, it's rooted in power and vested interest. It's not rooted in science. There's no science to support what we're talking about in terms of the drug war and in terms of prohibition. Because what brought about the war on drugs? The war on drugs was largely brought about by a number of different threads coming together. So 
the threads that were coming together was that we have a well-established tobacco industry, a well-established alcohol industry, and caffeine industry, and sugar, and we don't want that business to be threatened. So that was one reason. So if you think about colonialism and the empire, then gathering tobacco from other countries and gathering sugar and then gathering and making alcohol and tobacco. And cocaine. So cocaine was used in dentistry, wasn't it? Certainly. But but the things like cannabis and opium particularly and cocaine were used by the other. So there's an awful lot of racism embedded in And that's why the US people refer to it as marijuana. People were smoking cannabis, but they wanted to create this Mexican-Spanish sort of language to associate with it. So it seemed a bit more mystical and outside. A bit more foreign, yeah. And unlike you probably know yourself, the whole opium thing with the UK, the UK came to occupy parts of China, Hong Kong on a lease, because they went to war with China and they won that war. But that war was solely about the opium wars and they wanted to continue to sell opium in China. And that's why they went to war with China. That's right. Because like pre, I don't know if you call it colonization, but pre the British influence in that time, opium wasn't really used no. that much, like recreationally. No. That was like introduced by the British to basically turn their like like enemy, I guess, into this workforce that was unable to and buy back. to make money. And they were making big yeah. money on opium. The opium trade was big business. So it wasn't just about the impact of the drug, it was more about the trade because they, they were growing opium, I think in India or Pakistan or wherever it was, and then selling it to the Chinese. And it, the opium trade was a big trade. It was a big moneymaker. And so the war on drugs that really kicked in with Nixon was really another campaign in order to attack the hippies and the people who were thinking for themselves so you had the Vietnam War and you had this whole movement of people doing drugs and attacking the establishments. And so there's a whole history of using the war on drugs to, to attack the other, usually the black population or the immigrant population. And then you had it also as a way of attacking the hippie movements and people who were anti-establishments. And then obviously the vested interest of business people who wanted to protect their industries. For example, Cannabis and the hemp industry is a huge threat to the paper industry, to the wood, to the wood what? industry. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, my yeah, god! Yeah, no. Cannabis can be used in so many ways. It's a wonderful product. So you could, you can make paper out of hemp. So there's a whole pile of. In, you can make shoes out of out of clothes. You can make clothes. You can make clothes. You can make shoes out of out of hemp and whatever. There's all sorts. Again, I don't know loads and loads about it, but what I'm, what I do know enough of is that there is lots of vested interests. So when people talk about prohibition, you need to move your head outside of drugs are dangerous because we know that the drugs we've legalised are dangerous, and it's not about drugs. The war, the prohibition, and the war on drugs is not about drugs. It's about profits. It's about power. It's about vested interest. On my website, I've listed 20 groups who benefit from the war on drugs. Who are those? Who's the top five? Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure I could quickly run off the top five, but I'll give you, I'll give you a few of them. 
politicians benefit from the war on drugs because they can regularly just reel off this demonized group. So it's a distraction, right? It's a distraction it's of the real winner. issues. Because if, if they talk about, oh, we're going to get rid of crime and drugs and stuff like that, it completely brushes over the fact that crime and drugs come from people who have shit lives, shit jobs and like crap community. Yep. And crimes also what we police. So we're not policing white collar crime and we're not policing tax evasion and whatever but that's another story but yeah <laughs> politically getting tough on drugs wins votes and and that's embedded because people have been brainwashed for decades and that's why i go back to the 1950s and institutionalized discrimination it's hard to talk to people about the conversation we're having because people have been brainwashed and people have struggled to see what we're talking about the other one would be the pharmaceutical and the legal drug trade, they have a very strong vested interest in making sure that the war on drugs continues. So that it was interesting when we legalized medical cannabis, we didn't legalize people to grow their own cannabis. And people who are poor, oh, so yes. you have to get it from the pharmaceutical companies and they make a profit on it. And they make a huge profit. And I know lots and lots of people who don't have well-paid jobs or who don't have jobs who can't afford medical cannabis on prescription. Yeah, that's interesting because the medicinal cannabis, like I thought, this is me as a doctor, like I don't, I'm not even well-informed like in this space, but I thought that the medicinal cannabis was like the purified CBD oil, like that kind of stuff. I thought that's yeah. what we were allowed. But it turns out that like you can buy legally like through a prescription like bud like you could buy bud and you could buy like an atomizer or whatever it was to basically have vape of cannabis right i don't understand why we can buy that spend lots of money and people individuals can't just grow it's, there's no, no difference no, no it's about vested interest so all along this whole debate that we have will be fraught with other people attempting to sabotage that debate with their own vested interests. So obviously alcohol and uh, the caffeine and the nicotine industry will campaign against the legalisation of drugs because, look, people have agency and people can choose to not use drugs and people can choose, most people can choose to regain control of their out-of-control behaviour. There are a small proportion of people, maybe 5 to 10% of people, who from time to time will struggle. But for the most part, there isn't, there isn't an incredible net which has no limits of which people will become addicted to drugs if we legalise drugs. There's only a small proportion of the population who will ever become chronically addicted. And most of those people are people who don't have the resources before they start using to, to, to have alternative options in life. So people sometimes worry about legalising drugs because they think that everybody will become addicted. It's garbage, really. I use alcohol. I think you were suggesting that you use alcohol. And neither of us are addicted. And we know loads of people who use this really dangerous drug who aren't addicted. But yes, we also know people who have damaged their life through alcohol. We probably both know people in, in that regard. What I'm trying to say is that if we introduced and allowed all drugs to be available, we would dense the industry of alcohol, tobacco. Because there's two levels, right? There's the decriminalization yeah. level, which is saying it's no longer a crime, but we're also not going to provide 
it, yep. right? Like I think that's the model that they've got in um, Portugal, is that right? They've had it for 20 years, yeah. And Portugal as a case study, what's the effects of drug use when that, now they've got decriminalisation? Yeah, the, the, the impact on Portugal is that they have lower rates of addiction than other comparable countries in Europe. And I think that's probably because people can seek help and people are not stigmatised as much. And they have lower rates of overdose death. So overdose death, and they have some lower rates of some of the diseases as well. And they probably spend less money on prisons as well. We talk about prisons and you're quite right to do that. But the criminal justice system, that going getting lawyers and getting judges and having four or five hearings and having trials, it's a hell of a lot of money. But also, I said to you earlier on about people's lives are ruined by criminal convictions. You know, but decriminalisation is a good step in the right direction, but it's not enough. It's nowhere near enough. I advocate for it, and I think it's. I think we could do it overnight. So it's a wonderful first step that we could implement overnight. But you see, that they talked about decriminalisation of possession in New Zealand. It went through Parliament, but they get, they've given police discretion. So there isn't decriminalisation of possession. And what we're finding is that the same old people, the Maori people, are being pushed and pulled and pushed through the system. So decriminalisation of possession in New Zealand has meant that largely Pākehā are no longer getting, getting get, away with are it. no longer getting apprehended, which is great. <laughs> but it's not great that the police have been given discretion. And decriminalisation isn't that good because it still means that people don't really know what they're taking. It still means that there's big business underground, which isn't being taxed, which is criminal, which will create more criminal networks. And we need to understand too, the research has shown that the tougher you get on these criminal networks, the more violence is created and the more community instability is created. Say you've got 600 people in Waikanae Beach, where I am now, using illicit drugs, and they get their drugs from this one person. If you take that one person out, you've still got 600 people who are looking to get their drugs. Now, that one person who was selling the drugs might have a network of, say, three or four people who do work for them or whatever, now, the numbers might be, yeah, I'm just making up numbers. But if you take that person off and you, you proclaim, oh, we've caught Mr. Big in Waikanae Beach, she's no longer going to be, or she's no longer selling drugs or whatever, what that means is the person who's in whose patches may be in Paraparaumo will be thinking, well, there's 600 people up there, I'm going to start selling up there. So they come and start selling up here because these people up here are crying out for their fix or whatever. Because it's a power vacuum, basically, right? And then you create a turf war and then you create violence and then people are saying, hey, he's coming in, taking our patch. We, we're not having that. And then you have violence. But also the people who were at 600 were getting their drugs for a regular supply. They knew what they were. They probably developed a trust and a, a sense of understanding of purity. But now they've been getting their drugs from someone else from a different area, then they don't know who it is and they're a bit frightened. And so you create a lot of tension. And if there's any conflict, if the guy from Paraguay has got an issue or the guy from Waikanae Beach has got an issue, then those issues are not sorted out by some tribunal or by some arbitration or by some consumer rights organisation. They're sorted out by guns, knives and baseball bats. And then, But that's been created by getting tough on prohibition. And you only need to look at Mexico and the, the toughness of prohibition on Mexico is the armed forces. But each time it's a cat and mouse, each time the cat gets bigger, the mouse gets bigger and you end up with these big monsters. 
as, but we've created these monsters by enforcing prohibition. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. But I'm quite interested in this concept of legalization, yeah. right? Because that's yeah. the next step is above yeah. decriminalization is legalization. And when you look at the research in terms of what's filled up in the addiction clinics, right? In New Zealand, and especially in my experience in healthcare, probably when we talk about illicit substances, probably the biggest problem is methamphetamine. Yeah. People do, like you said, crime, and then but also as like a medication side effect is the drug related drug induced yeah. psychosis, right? So that causes a lot of issues as well. And in terms of like other illicit substances, I think people not necessarily illicitly, but people develop like an opioid yeah. dependence and stuff like that. So if you legalize drugs, are we saying that we're going to start producing pharmaceutical grade methamphetamine and allow people to have greater access to like opioids? Or what does that mean for yeah. those drugs? I think it means we're going to produce pharmaceutical grade everything that's currently used recreationally. So when you talk about these people and you talk about their psychosis and suggest that their psychosis is caused by the methamphetamine, there was somebody trying to break a record recently. I can't remember where it was now, but they hadn't slept. I think they were trying to do something, but it meant trying to do something over three or four nights and they hadn't slept. I can't remember where it was now. Maybe it was some walking thing or whatever. But wherever it was, on the third day, they developed psychosis and they had to stop it. Now, that psychosis wasn't caused by methamphetamine. That was caused by a human being whose brain was not resting, who was staying awake, I don't know how they were staying awake and maybe they were just taking legal coffee or whatever, but they were staying awake. <laughs> it was to break a world record of some sort, but they developed a psychosis and that's, they had to stop. The, the, they stopped him because he started becoming hallucinating and all sorts. But that's really very common when people don't sleep. And so it's a chicken and egg to know how much the cause of psychosis that you see in people who use stimulant drugs is the result of the stimulant drug or is the result of sleep deprivation perpetually and continually over a long period of time? And I know that's what stimulant drugs do. They keep you awake. So what I'm trying to say is that giving people a clean legal supply doesn't mean that they have all these issues. These issues are related to people who are chronically out of control. And why are they chronically out of control? They are chronically out of control because they are all over the show. They are perhaps homeless. Perhaps they hear voices. Perhaps they're mentally ill. Perhaps they've got learning disabilities. That Perhaps they've got all sorts of crises that they can't cope with. So if, if you are concerned about the people in the addiction clinic, then legalization isn't the solution for those people. The solution for those people is to deal with their underlying problems. Legalisation will help them because they will no longer be involved in the whole criminal network. So do you think the addiction clinics, it might be a model where, say, we've legalised like methamphetamine and we've got pharmaceutical grade methamphetamine and people can access it with, say, like a prescription from their yep. doctor or something? Or do you mean that they can buy it over the counter? Both. I think both would be possible, I think. And I think we'd need to roll it out slowly. I mean, you and I can buy and make alcohol. So I don't think methamphetamine is more dangerous than alcohol. I think the people whose lives shock you terribly, and they shock me. So if you sit down, you show me any of those people, and if I come to your clinic or the emergency, and I sit down with those people and we chat with them, and we genuinely listen to what their stories, then we will hear a story that, that so upsets us and distresses us, and we think, how could anyone cope with a life like that? 
And that'll be stuff that have come before the drugs, right? It'll be a life of physical abuse, sex abuse, yeah, child abuse. Yeah, and they've never resolved it, and they don't know how to resolve it, and they're in a total mess. That's what we've got to deal with. But concentrating on drugs and drugs being the drugs being the cause of what you're observing is a misunderstanding. Drugs are not helping. I'm not suggesting that drugs don't cause cause problems. And I'm sure that if all drugs were legalized, we would still have a cohort of people coming in needing help with addictions caused by the legal drugs that we've legalized. So it's not to say that problems will go away. But most of the harm, I believe, is caused by prohibition, not by drugs. Yeah, I feel like a lot of our society and a lot of our systems are so symptom-based and nothing is really upstream enough. Like the whole medical system that we have is completely symptom-based and that goes for like any specialty and specifically mental health psychiatry. It's all about treating the symptoms when actually we need to be looking at why people are like in this situation. Things need to be upstream because I have this feeling that obviously health is health but education is health, our justice system is health, our taxation is health, our climate change is health. Everything has such a strong place and and, Everything has like a strong impact on people's health and we just completely forgotten that for some reason because we've just let, I don't know, pharmaceutical companies, big corporations decide what we like allow is good. Totally. I think it's a reductionist agenda. So I think we don't like nuance, we don't like complexity and we tend to reduce things. So unfortunately the medical profession tends to reduce things to a biological physiological components and so there has been a move to say drug use isn't a crime problem it's a health problem and i don't really agree with that i certainly agree with the general trend of let's move drugs away from a crime issue but drug taking isn't a health issue and if we want to understand it's a sociological issue <laughs> if you think about alcohol as a drug then alcohol isn't so much a health issue of course it is a health issue But it's a very strong cultural issue that we've got. It's a very strong normalised social issue. When people talk about like crate day, I'm like, how does someone drink that much beer in a day and survive? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what does it do to the organs of their body, you know? And And everyone just eggs each other on. When I was lecturing at Victoria University, a couple of courses on drugs, I would show them pictures of uh, birthday cards or wedding cards or whatever and they all had alcohol in them then i'd show them one that i'd made up with a line of coke on <laughs> you can't have a line i was well why is it different <laughs> no i'm not promoting snorting a line of coke because i said i've never used drugs but what i'm saying is how have we culturally created this normalization where even after you passed your driving test somebody might say are you going out to celebrate tonight and going out to celebrate tonight is a euphemism for going to get... And, and, and like, how can that make any sense? You've just passed your driving test and you suggest that I go and get an alcohol, you know? Uh, but it, there's nothing that makes sense, really. So so if we're to understand it's it's a psychological issue, it's a structural issue, you know, it's a structural issue. You know, where, where, are, all the, where are all the outlets rated for, for out, alcohol sales? The densely populated alcohol outlets are in the poor areas. Same with gambling. Because, yeah, people who have good friends, good family, good support, feel loved, have hope and good prospects, those people don't do drugs. Like, it's simple. 
Well, they might do drugs, <laughs> but they don't get addicted. If you like this podcast and want to stay updated on the newest content, follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Revolving Door Syndrome. Send us a DM or leave a comment. We'd love to hear from you. The people that I'm meeting, they don't need rehabilitation and they don't need social reintegration. They need integration and they need habilitation because for the people that I'm looking at and I've been working with, they've never really felt integrated in the first place. So to talk about reintegration fails to understand the disadvantage and the alienation and the disconnect of the lives of these people. And when you talk about rehabilitation, they never had habilitation in the first place. If you look at the prison population and you look at the addiction population who are chronically addicted, then you will see people with uh, very low literacy levels, very poorly qualified, people with high incidences of attempted suicide, high incidences of homelessness, unemployment, poor housing, broken families. And when I take drugs off them and we get them drug-free, what resources have they got? What networks have they got to lean upon? Let's say I become addicted to alcohol. I can recall and return to so many recollections and patterns of life where I know how to live. Most of these people have not got healthy, productive patterns of life that they've ever had because life has been so problematic and tough for them. I've also got a whole network of friends who will look after me, who will give me a second chance or whatever. These people are often very, very isolated. They're people who have never had a chance. Tell me a bit more about what you're doing with Harm Reduction Coalition Aotearoa. We need a pressure group in New Zealand to speak out. We need a voice to start speaking the truth about drugs. And I've been here for 12 years and I've not really heard much of a voice speaking out. I spoke out against drug abstinence courts. I would speak out against the compulsory assessment and treatment and addiction. I would speak out against giving the police discretion because I know it will impact Maori disproportionately. When I came to New Zealand, I had been involved in a piece of research in Wales where we were distributing naloxone to the community. This is in 20, oh, 2009. I come to New Zealand and it's taken years and years and years to get naloxone handed out. It's a no-brainer what it's all that about. And for the listeners, yeah, naloxone is the cure for morphine overdose. Yeah, and so it saves lives. It has no adverse impacts either, naloxone. So naloxone should be handed out to anybody who is prescribed or, or uses any opioids. I couldn't understand why that wasn't being promoted. But in my mind, I would be campaigning for naloxone to be available in pharmacies. So the Harm Reduction Coalition ultimately would seek to end the drug war, would seek to legalise drugs. As I said to you, I don't, I've never taken an illegal drug in my life. I'm not pro-drugs. I'm pro trying to reduce harm for my children or my grandchildren. I'm pro for a society which has an evidence-based drug policy. And prohibition is one of the worst things going in terms of harm. But prohibition just isn't about filling the prisons or filling the courts. Prohibition has affected the way in which people see addiction. It's affected the way in which we understand prevention. It's affected the way in which we can weigh up 
the, the, the risks posed by illicit drugs compared to the risks posed by illegal drugs. So, you know, you and I have talked in this podcast around, isn't it weird the way people treat alcohol? Well, it's weird because of prohibition. So you can't talk about alcohol and not talk about prohibition. The two are interconnected. Prohibition, alcohol is what it is because of prohibition. So you think that if we never had this period of prohibition or whatever, alcohol would be a bit more respected? If prohibition never happened, alcohol would be in competition with all the other drugs. Right. Let's say you're having a party. There, there would be other drugs in the repertoire. You could be doing some magic mushrooms and I could be on MDMA. <laughs> but, you know, people are not crazy and you make your choices sensibly and you make your choices depending on what you want. So you'd also have microdosing as well. So people wouldn't be off their heads on methamphetamine. Jill said to me before, oh, do you want a coffee or whatever? But if drugs were legal, she might have said, well, do you want a microdose of methamphetamine or amphetamine? <laughs> and it, it, it's silly, but it would be, it would be okay. Yeah. It would be. So we've got uh, time for one last question. <laughs> if you could try any of the drugs <laughs> in a safe environment, this is a, a naughty, which one would you have tried? <laughs> this is a naughty personal question. The reason why I didn't try drugs was because I came from a very poor background and I wanted to get opportunities. And I knew that people like me would struggle to get opportunities uh, because I was very working class if I had a criminal conviction. And then I became a Christian and I thought, oh, I shouldn't really take drugs and it would be awful. And I thought, I won't be able to get, become a probation officer if I get a criminal conviction. And then when I was working in the criminal justice system, I just thought it would screw my whole career if I get done for drugs. So I've just, I've just not bothered with illicit drugs. But now I'm retired, I can't. Because it would just be too inconvenient. <laughs> you know, it was, it was just, it's just too much cost in a sense. But now I'm retired, I, I could do drugs. But okay, answer your question. I think MDMA or, or and cannabis, uh, but it's 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 horses for courses. It depends on what you want, doesn't it? Really, so uh, you know that that would make sense. I don't I don't think of it as exotic, weird, or, or different. They're all they're all drugs. I generally see all the drugs as drugs. I don't see them as being uh, demon or fearful. I, I have no fear about illicit drugs. I, I wouldn't have a fear that I've become an addict or anything because it's all propaganda this because what you need is to be in a safe environment you, it has to be like a safe in terms of making sure that's pure and you know exactly what you're taking and that's what we get when we have a bottle of alcohol that tells you it's exactly 5.6 percent you want to know what's on the tin exactly and it's safe and i know what alcohol does but i would have no objection in using illicit drugs if they were legal but at this point now, it's nice to say I haven't tried drugs and to keep saying that because I can then have a conversation with maybe listeners or people who might then think, well, there maybe there's some arguments that he's trying to make because he's not doing it for a vested interest or for any agenda. Thank you so much for coming on the Revolving Door Syndrome. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure chatting to you. I've enjoyed it. Revolving Door Syndrome acknowledges Māori as tangata whenua and to tiriti or waitangi partners in Aotearoa, New Zealand. We recognise the inequities and challenges faced by Indigenous and vulnerable groups and acknowledge our duty to work towards closing the gap. Um.